Well, this morning, uh, we know that we talked about the good choices aren't always the best choices. And we've been looking at good, better, and best. This is part two of valuing uh, God's wisdom and looking for God's wisdom, which equals a better life. And sometimes God's wisdom kind of doesn't seem right. It just seems so counterproductive. Um, like in the fact that last week we looked at that it's better to choose a good name or that was a Hebrew way of saying it's better to have good character than to have wealth. And of course, we know that a lot of times having lots of things is uh, in our world today is better. They say that's better and it doesn't matter what character you have, just run over anybody or take from anybody and just have everything that you want, not necessarily what you need. And then God's saying, no, a good name, good character is better, and that leads to death. Death is better choice than your birth, because we realize that when we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, that because of good character, not our character, but having taken the name of Christ, and putting, repenting from our life and turning to Christ and having his life. And we retain his character and we conquer death. And so we don't have a fear of death. Now, I'll be wanting to tell you, I don't like death, right? I don't worship death. I don't like it, but I don't fear it. And it doesn't grip and control my life. Um, I like one person said, it's like, yeah, I'm not afraid of death, but I don't like dealing with it at the time of death, right? But it's amazing when we have a good character. I have never, I, I am amazed that every time that I'm with somebody at the end of their life, they worship Jesus so much when their character is the character of Christ. They, they teach me. Um, it's amazing as I go to be their pastor and at the end, and, and they are just full of worship when their character of their life is Christ, because they're not afraid of death. And then we looked at in verse 2 that it's better to choose a funeral than to choose a party. And that seems so counterproductive, but we, we think more about our life, and we look at our life, and we evaluate our life better when we think about death than when we think about just happiness and joy and, and all these other things and filling ourselves with drink or food and all these things. We don't really contemplate life and what does it really mean and what has God really done for us. And we don't really think about that. But at death, we see people think about God more than any other time. And it is an amazing time. So we see these choices that we would say aren't necessarily the, the maybe good or the better choice, but we see in our text that they are better than a normal good choice. So let's pray and let's go to Ecclesiastes as we have some counterculture things to look at this morning things that are not common right now in the philosophical views of our culture. I'm quoting from a couple of books that are now in our library. 
Uh, they've been purchased last week, and you can go down and check them out. Um, I'm not sure if they've been added yet. Uh, the ladies, are they have to do their work on putting the cards in and stuff, uh, but also have some copies in my office um, and uh, encourage you to look at and way that our culture is destroying the gospel. And so we're going to be talking about that based on our context of our verses this morning. So let's pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Lord, we have already been blessed beyond measure as we've reoriented our eyes to look on that which is best, and that is Christ, who is our King, who is our Sovereign who is the ruler of all, who is over all and in all and through all. Lord, I am so blessed as we sit here, as we prepare our minds and our hearts to read your word and to reflect on your perfect word. I'm reminded of the fact that no matter how evil things are or how we, much we disagree with things that are happening around us or to us, Lord, all of those things can never derail your plan, your purpose. Um, You tell us that the horse is made ready for battle, but in the end, victory belongs to the Lord. Lord, the world can plan and scheme, and it can follow Satan and his scheming and his planning, and it can do everything to thwart you and to set man as king and authority of the world, but yet the reality is that can never be taken away from you. Lord, may we long for your return. May we look forward to that return. May we not grasp too tightly to this world, but may we cling solely to your name, the name in which is above all names, that one day every knee will bow. Lord, that is You, Jesus Christ, the one that has saved us from our sin. May we worship you this morning. May we give you preeminence. May we glorify you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes, and in our text in chapter 7, looking at verses 1 through 8, um, a wonderful, wonderful text is difficult because of the the Hebrew wording sometimes is filled with these, the Hebrew poetry, but with some careful looking into it and diagramming, it's not terribly difficult, but I hope to shed some light and encourage our thinking this morning that we would glean from our Lord and our Savior this morning. Chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than than to go into the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the Fools is in the house of mirth. By the way, if you're wondering, mirth is laughter. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry or for anger lodges in the heart of fools. It is a, an amazing text that is before us. And I read verse 9 because it kind of emulates the context of verse 8. Choices that are good, better, and best. And then we pick up where we left off. And in verse 4, it said that the heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning or the sorrowful. It's basically continuing this context of the funeral and, and the fact that the more that we contemplate where life really comes from and we contemplate the reality of the fact that and we take on the character of God that we have victory over death. And, and there's this whole cascading effect in these verses. It's better to choose sorrow. And, and we talked about that more literally what it's talking about is when it goes on in the end of chapter 3 or verse 3 and into verse 4 is literally by sadness or through sadness or because of sadness, actually the heart is made better. It's literally teaching the fact that we can endure more. We become better at dealing with life. We become better at dealing with the circumstances around us. But the more that we turn and run from sadness and sorrow, the harder it is for our heart to deal with life. It's a cascading effect. The, more, the, the less that we deal with our character according to God, and the harder it is to deal with death. And the harder it is to deal with death, the harder it is to deal with sadness. And the harder it is to deal with sadness, we just aren't going to be able to live life. It is a cascading effect. The point is not so much the, the gladness as it is the soundness of our heart. Our, 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 it's not so much that we are just glad all the time. It's the fact that our heart is sound. It's able to withstand the pressures of the world and the things. Dealing with death and the sorrow and the circumstances of life. We aren't taught that. In fact, we're taught the opposite, to run from it. The world, and the world in which we see is like anything that's hard, you don't do. Anything that's easy, that's what you want to do. The fool says, go do whatever is, makes life easier, do it. And if it's hard, run. But the reality is, is in life, many times those things that are hard, God is using to make our heart sound so we can endure the things of this world. The world says, just run and, and fulfill all your sexual desires. And yet it unleashes basically hell on our bodies and our emotions and our, our things and our, the things that we do. Go out and eat all you want. And yet it hurts our bodies. I'm learning that as I change my diet. There's things that are healthy for me and things that are not. But we're taught, if it tastes good, we're taught to eat based on how it tastes. 
And so everything has got more and more and more amounts of sugar. And in my case, more bacon makes life better. Or the Bible, that too. <laughs> but I, I like, you know, but, the, but that's what we're taught is if it tastes better, it must be better for you. Right? So eat lots of candy. But that's further from the truth. Literally, America is dying from sugar. Right? And, and there's so many other things. We can go through. There's, people are dying because of money and wealth and trying to attain it at all costs. There's all sorts of things. We say, whatever makes your life better, run to it. And, but all it does is it negates all that God has given us according to his purpose. Why is this true? And, and, and we see, as I run through our points here, and that is, he get, tells us in the end of verse 3, he says, For by its sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Because laughter does not automatically mean happiness. It doesn't. God's goal for us is not just to make us happy, but to make us complete. To make us complete. To share in His righteousness. If it was so true, if if our whole life was to make us happy, that's not what Christ came. It was just to fulfill everybody's wishes and dreams, but to meet our greatest need to deal with our sin, to deal with our lack of relationship with a holy God. He came to provide peace, peace that the world can never understand. Truth is, is that many people are laughing on the outside and trying to make their life happy, but they're dying on the inside. Also in verse 4, we see, why is it better to choose sorrow? Because wise people focus their minds on the eternal Wisdom is on looking past our current circumstances and thinking about the eternal aspect. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or laughter. The wise person realizes that the time of mourning are valuable because those times cause the wise person to reflect on the eternal Peter told us, why are you surprised when you suffer? Christ suffered and we're called to live a life emulating Christ as he suffered. We get to share in his suffering. But also we get to share in his life. And because of that, because of his life that was lived, even in suffering, he suffered And then he died, but he rose again. And as he conquered death, so we also get to share in that life that he lived for us in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection. Sorrowful times cause wise people to think about God, about the brevity of life, and about eternity. Times of mourning cause a wise person to take a serious look at yourself, ourself, and our own spiritual relationship with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Verse 17 and 18 put it this way. It says, For our momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. God's eternal weight of glory. Beyond all measure and proportion. His glory is beyond anything we could ever measure. And he said in verse 18, it's because of this. He says, we are not looking at what is seen, but, but what is not seen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is eternal. We're not, so we're not focused on what we have right here, but what we know we have in Christ and what he's done for us. But that's not the fool. The fool, because the fool focuses his mind on what is temporal, mirth, laughter. Literally, it's a laughter of pleasure. They seek pleasure for the sake of laughter. That's literally what this word means. I love the fact that the the ESV translators didn't translate the word mirth because it makes us go back to the original meaning. It's not just think about ha, 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 laughter, but really seeking with our hearts to find pleasure in things for laughter. It is better to choose sorrow because laughter doesn't automatically mean happiness. We're not after happiness. We're after eternal joy. And that eternal joy is a byproduct of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not in our works. But the fool in their works seeks pleasure. They're driven by pleasure. They're pleasure seekers. They're seeking self, what to glorify themselves, to raise themselves, to elevate self. God classifies a pleasure seeker as a fool. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. Now, when I go home and, and I have my one cup of coffee and I sit there and go, ah, and I find pleasure in it, I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I'm saying is that my goal is not to to find pleasure in that for the laughter in life. I'm looking at, I'm looking beyond that, and I'm thinking, life is good not because I have a cup of coffee, but because I have Christ. And because I have Christ, the cup of coffee is even better. Right? Right? And, and, And we evaluate our life not based on what pleasures us, but we evaluate life on Christ. This is a real problem. This is why we find ourselves in the midst of many philosophical debates, and beyond that, political debates, which is dictating the society and culture around us. That's why we have a problem with social justice and social gospel and it's just the gospel. It's not social gospel. It's the gospel. And it's not just, it's not social justice. It's justice. It's God's justice. John Harris, um, he's, a, he's writing at a record pace right now to try to combat some of the theological error that's coming to our churches. And it's destroying some of our churches. Some amazing, well-known biblical men that are falling at a record pace Because of this whole idea of seeking pleasure and and looking at temporal things, looking at things that are now. But he wrote a book just recently, just came out in the last couple weeks on, and it's Christianity and the social justice and religions in conflict. 
Notice he said religions in conflict, not the church, but religions. And he says this, he says, writing about this idea of the temporal things in life, he says, Christians must recapture a kind of realism exemplified in both the biblical text and their own traditions. He said, philosopher Paul Tyson wrote that Christian need needed to return to a vision of reality that's grounded in the revealed truth of a genuinely spiritual and transcendently sourced nature. So something that's above nature. He goes on to say, uh, John Harris goes on to say, he says, in other words, God gave human tools like sense perception, a conscience, and a reason or reasoning. He also imparted special revelation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who convicts the world, teaches believers, and inspired men to write the Holy Scriptures. Yet this access into reality is not grounded in the finite human or humans themselves, but rather in an invariable, absolute, and unchanging God. Without the transcendence of an eternal realm and an eternal God, there can be no real meaning in the temporal. That's our problem. You don't find any real meaning today because they're looking past the real God. Tyson goes on to warn that without such vision of the transcendent God, he said, we will only have a moral power instrumental exploitation and a deepening blindness to the actual human truths that give meaning and purpose to our existence. We wonder why the world is so bad. He said, unfortunately, this is the path social justice advocates and have chosen. Instead of of grounding truth in the divine and universal, they prefer to do it in the particular created beings that are temporal. And that's the reality. We need to choose what is better, not what is temporal and easier. It gets us off track away from the truth of the gospel. That leads us to verse 5, and that is we see the fact that it is better to choose to listen to a rebuke, right? A correction, as we learn from listening with the little ones this morning. In verse 5, it says, Better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. When people say are, are foolish and they're singing all these songs of, of you can have whatever pleases you. This is, again, a direct outflow of the sorrow and, and seeking pleasure. I find this really interesting because there's so many people today that don't want to come to church because they're afraid of rebuke or correction. They're afraid of that word. And, and the fact is, is, Paul predicted this is what happened to the church in 2 Timothy 4.3, that they would be driven more by the tickling ears than by the truth of who God is. The Bible is not given to tickle ears, but to cut open our soul and to correct it, that we might carry God's righteousness and not a righteousness that is our own. Proverbs 12, 15 says, 
The way of fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves into the mighty hand of God and we listen to God's correcting voice, our life changes because his righteousness and grace is applied to our life. In verse 6, he gives us the reason. And he's because laughter is short-lived. I don't know about you, but have you ever burnt up, dried up thorns? I, I, I liken it to the old dried up Christmas tree, right? Have you ever done that? Um, I don't recommend it doing too close to your house. I don't recommend it doing it in your fireplace. Not a good place. Um, it acts like a, a flamethrower. <laughs> but out in my pasture, and, and right now especially, it's wet, perfect place. It's like setting off fireworks, right? We light it and it goes, and it crackles. It makes this crackling noise and it, and it flames up in this beautiful, amazing ball of flame. And then it's done. It's short-lived. That's the idea here. It's, is, is Solomon is telling us and God is telling us that, that when we focus on this type of laughter or this type of song from the fools, this wisdom that the, the foolish say that they have, rather than taking the correction from the wise or from God in his word, it said it's like the crackling thorns under a pot. It's just short-lived. It, it throws off some heat and, a lo- and it makes a crackling noise, but then it's done. Have you ever done that where you've turned on the barbecue, put your meat on, walk away, come back to flip your meat and realize that the propane is out. And your meat's been sitting there for a half an hour. Well, if you're like me, I'm, I'm cooking, like, and I'm cooking big roasts on the barbecue, and I'm, like, doing it for a couple hours. And I come back, and you, you're supposed to eat, right? Soon, I'm supposed to get the meat off the table and realize there's no fire. <laughs> there's no heat, right? That short flame did no good. The short flame of the song of a fool, doesn't, it may make you feel good in the moment, but there's no heat to really change your life. It just is burnt up. It goes away, and then you're left with nothing but a coldness of life. The imagery means that laughter burns out quickly and makes a little noise, but there is no laugh, lasting there's emptiness to our life. There's no real lasting anything. This is exactly what Solomon has already said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said to laughter, it is mad and out of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and yet, he says, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. The reality is this, pleasure, laughter, all this is folly, it's vanity, But the happiness that Christ, the true joy that Christ gives his people is something solid. It's sound. It's lasting. It doesn't burn out quickly. 
not a bang and then goes away. It's eternal power. It's substantial. It's not dependent on health or circumstances or our power. It never leaves a man. Even in death, it ends in a crown of glory that does not fade, that we get to hand to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, someday. It is written in Job 20. Talk about a man who knows sorrow. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? I pray sometimes, Lord, don't consider me the same way. (laughs) I, I do, honestly. I mean, that's pretty scary to think. But I know, and I say, Lord, I I trust that even if you do consider me, you will carry me through because I know I can't. But it is written in Job 25, he says, the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. But it is also written, Jesus said in Luke 6, 25, he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Our Savior was thinking of the fire's of the final judgment when foolish laughter will perish forever in an eternal hell and the wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's better to choose to listen to a rebuke because laughter is short-lived, but also because fools do not lead. Foolishness and fools do not lead. This short-term foolish thoughts of pleasure and laughter do not lead to godliness to godliness. People may wind up, you know, as funny as this, we see this idea in verse 7 about this whole idea of oppression. Surely oppression drives the wise man into madness and the bribes corrupt the heart. We get so frustrated with what we see and what's going on and we realize, we see the bribing, we see the oppression and we realize it will not lead us to goodness into godliness. People may wind up oppressing us because God corrects us for following their foolishness. Sometimes good, well-intentioned believers choose to follow this foolishness. And they choose to follow those that are focused on pleasuring self and self-seeking path. Deuteronomy 28, 33-34 is a great illustration. Deuteronomy 28 talks about Israel seeking and following the, 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 the people around them and choosing to follow to please self rather than to obey God. And in, the, in, in doing that, God used those that were foolish to oppress his own people. Fools don't shoot straight, right? That's the idea here behind fools take bribes. Fools don't shoot. They make you feel good, and that ultimately ends up driving you mad. (laughs) They, that's the foolish, wind up in charge. And so it frustrates us when we see them end up in charge. People who play games and try to manipulate and bribe and lead, and then we see that it only leads to corruption. Proverbs 15, 27, again, it says, Fools are greedy for gain, but not the wise people. Proverbs 21, 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The idea there, food and drink. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right. Seems right. That's the word for feels right. 
There's a way that seems right or feels right to a man, but it ends in the way of death. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We are supposed to be children of light. That exposes the foolish things of the world. Romans 12, 1 through 3, right? Don't be conformed to the, to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Scott Allen, he wrote a book called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, and it's foolish when we, this whole idea is foolish. And he says in his book, um, he says, the confessing church of Germany back in the day during the rise of Nazism, he said they resisted. We know of Dr. Wurmbrand and, and Tortured for Christ and the rise of communism. When we read that, it's an amazing read. And we see how some faithful, Bible-believing, preaching churches, of, and that is groups of people, resisted against this rise. And during that rise, they, they told the church, this is what you must do, and this is how you must do it. And you don't say anything about, about the our government, you can't say anything, and you can't talk about all this other stuff, and they go into this big detail. And he writes about this, and he says, this, the church openly confronted Nazism and, and communism, and, and ultimately, they paid the price for this choice with their lives, many. The church in Germany has yet, in many ways, yet to recover from this, uh, this just horrible event. We saw this even play out in the United States late in the 1800s, but even before the rise of Nazism and, 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 and all the, the social things going on. In the 1800s and early 1900s, there, when there was an aggressive secular ideology fueled by Darwin's naturalistic theory of evolution. And by the way, scientifically, it can't be a theory because there are no observable facts. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> because they changed, the, they changed the, the wording of theory. But this whole idea began to sweep through the, the academia and into the broader culture. Many mainstream Protestant denominations chose this path of conformity. Their secularized version of Christianity replaced a historic gospel with a social gospel. We're not seeing this social gospel for the first time. This is more like round four. This was the reason for the Council of three, uh, 325 AD when Athanasius was, was preaching against Pelagius because he was expounding to a social gospel. And they labeled him a heretic. In fact, when he preached when, when Pelagius got up to defend and tell him that what the social gospel or what the gospel meant to him, our Saint Nick reached across the room and punched him. <laughs> so I, that's the only time I love Saint Nick. <laughs> but it was an amazing opportunity. This whole idea of the social gospel is not new. According, according and because of the evolution theories, man wasn't fallen, they said, but perfectible. They espouse this idea of evolution that we can become perfection and following, continuing to follow the evolutionary model. The problem 
with society wasn't human sinfulness, they said, but social inequality, they said. The solution wasn't inward spiritual regeneration, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but external government programs designed to re-engineer society in order to eliminate social inequalities. Sounds like our headlines today. This was 1800s. Horace Greeley, he lived in uh, 1811 through 1872, founder and editor of the New York Tribune, um, succinctly summarized the social gospel this way, the heart of man is not depraved, his passions do not prompt to do, to do wrongdoing, and do not therefore by their actions produce evil. That's not what the Bible says. Evil flows only from social inequality, he said. Give people full scope, free play, a perfect and complete development, and universal happiness must be the result, he said. It's never been the result because that is the work of Christ. Create, he goes on to say, create a new form of society in which this is and it will be possible, then you will have a perfect society, then you will have the kingdom of heaven on earth. For many other Christians during this time, however, this kind of talk was truly heretical as it should be in your, as you hear these things. Rather than conforming to rapidly advancing secular ideology, ideology these Christians chose to resist and they became known as the fundamentalists. And our late great-great-grandparents of our evangelical church. They were led by such people as J. Gresham Machen. He wrote an amazing book, by the way, called Christianity and Liberalism. You should read it. It literally reads like today, but written ages ago. And R.A. Torrey. They held fast to the basic biblical doctrines such as the authority of the Bible, the fallen nature of mankind, the reality of the future judgment, and the atonement for our sins. The resulting bitter conflict between mainstream Protestantism and fundamentalism fractured the Western church. In its weakened condition, the church lost much of its social influence, and the emerging secular ideology increasingly filled the cultural vacuum. Once orthodox, Bible-believing, professing institutions, including nearly all of the Ivy League universities, abandoned biblical Christianity and rapidly secularized. Why did Harvard, Oxford, all of these Ivy League schools, Princeton, uh, the Pitts University of Pittsburgh, why did they all become the universities we know today? Because they weren't were seminaries of some of the top theologians of our day of, of our period, any time period. They were the go-to Bible-believing seminaries. What happened? They lost track of the gospel and started fo focusing on creating a better society rather than a better relationship and restoring a relationship to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The fundamentalist movement of the early 1900s gave rise to the present-day evangelicalism. The resistance preserved the gospel and biblical orthodoxy in America and today. The Bible-believing churches remain a significant cultural force. But that's about to give way. We have a society that doesn't want to hear correction from God. We have a society that wants pleasure. They're afraid of death to the point of foolishness. We see it all around us in things that are being driven and forced in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our society. And you see the reality that he brings to us in verse 7 is that, I'm sorry, it says verse 7, but verse 8, and that is better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And you all say amen because the the sermon at the end is better than the beginning. No, (laughs) it's better to choose the end. When you think about it, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. He's talking about the result of an outcome. I don't know about you, but when I start a project at home, it's so much more difficult than at the end when you get to stop and look at the finished product. You go out and get to sit with your favorite cup of coffee and just gaze and then that doesn't last very long and you realize, oh, I got to finish that project now. <laughs> but the end is far greater than the beginning. This is what God tells us from the beginning. You know, he said in, 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 in Genesis, right? Satan's like, yeah, you've corrupted the creation that I created, but I am going to deal you a death blow in your head through the work of Christ for the rest of eternity. The beginning doesn't matter as much as the end. Romans 13, 11 says, we should be looking forward, not backward, because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're closer to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His return is sooner now than when we first believed. He has continued to work in our life to perform to perform His work, to make us more like Him. Philippians 1, 6 says. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, look to Jesus, the author, but the most importantly, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set at the right-hand throne of God. You see, he, Jesus anguished. He experienced great suffering and anguish at the cross, but yet His gaze was on the finished product of the throne room of God and gathering up his adopted believers. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we come and sit at the right hand of God, true everlasting pleasure forevermore. Psalm 147, verse 11. Yes, there's that many psalms. (laughs) Verse 11, it says, Psalm 147, verse 11, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love, His everlasting love. 
It's better to choose patience. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, 29, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Whenever we're quick to something, it ruins us. It creates pride. When we stop and we wait and are patient, right? James chapter 1. Those of you that are memorizing James, right? Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because when we let, uh, when we face those trials, uh, those various kinds of trials, right? I like that. Not just one kind, but all the different kinds of trials. When we let it have, when we let it do what God intended it to do, what is the end result? You are perfect, lacking what? Nothing. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. But the fruit of the Spirit, right? The result of our life with Christ. If we are patient, stop living for the here and now. We start looking ahead and, and realize, and we are patient, and we wait for the coming of Christ. And we look, and we get our eyes off our circumstances here, and we look to Christ, and we stop letting the world and the things of the world dictate us. We get fearful, but it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, right? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such thing. There is no law. Basically, it's saying that if we look to the Lord and He does His work in us, we don't have to follow a bunch of rules because we'll be better than the rules. And those who belong to Christ have been crucified with the flesh and its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 7, he goes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But the one who sows of his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption. But the one who sows of the Spirit from his Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Are you patiently waiting for the Savior? So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here's the reality, and that is this. No matter what you are experiencing, there are two things that are best. God is sovereign and in control. With that in our context, we are able to handle all these things of life because they make us better than the things of the world. God is sovereign in control of all. The other thing is, is God is doing what is best for you for his glory. And that is the reality. Are you focused on your own glory? Are you focused on the glory of this world? Or are you focused on the glory of our Savior, our sovereign Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you giving him preeminence? first place, first priority in your life, is he your life? Does everything flow out of that? By the way, it's not 
God first, family second, work third, friends, well, maybe it's friends third, work third, I don't know, or fourth, fifth, I don't know how you prioritize your life, but that's not what God is saying. God is first in all of those things. All of life flows out of God and affects every one of those things. Solomon is just telling us, as he looks at it, he says, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to show you a bunch of things that are opposite to our thinking, but really they're best in God's eyes. And if we really believe that God is in control, we understand that, and we live that way. And we, we, are been give, we have been given great joy in the Lord, great peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our heart and mind through Christ Jesus. The real question is, do you have that joy and peace? If you've never experienced that great joy and peace, maybe you have to ask yourself, do you truly have a relationship with the Lord? Have you repented? Have you turned from your way of thinking and working for all those pleasures in your life, trying to make everything better? And have you turned to Christ and have you put your faith and trust in Him? He is our life. He's the only one that can pay for our sins. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth God or seeks God. We are all like sheep who have gone astray, it says. But we have a great Redeemer. We have a great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to pay for the unpayable debt, and that is the wages of sin, which is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Repent and believe in him and let him save you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be blessed as we begin to look at, the, at your word. May it do what you intended to do to correct our hearts and our minds that are the first and our most our first and our foremost priority would be to focus on you, to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and that you would be the one guiding our thoughts and our minds. Lord, you tell us that if we, we give everything to you through prayer, that we choose not to be anxious about the things of this world, but we rejoice in you. You say that you will give us peace that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and our minds through, which it's by Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's only through you that we will receive that peace that the world will never understand as long as they are apart from Christ. Lord, may that be our message, the great work of Christ, not trying to transform this world into something that's more socially acceptable, but may we help people turn to you Deal with their spiritual state, their sin, that they might have an eternal relationship with you for eternity. May that be our goal as we proclaim the great treasure that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.